Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Uh, We're really excited to be talking with Lauren Havens today. She's with Home Havens. She's the director of Home Havens. Lauren, we'd love to kick it off with a story. You're doing short-term rentals. I'm sure you got some crazy stories. Um, What has been your craziest experience thus far in real estate? Oh, man. Well, this is a guest story, but I... It's one for the ages. So this was way back in the beginning. We just had two or three properties that we were doing short-term rentals on. They were our own. So we were particularly invested in our guests and making sure everything was running perfectly. And I got a message one night and it says, where is the fire? And I look at my husband and I'm like, what? I hope there's no fire. Like, what in the world is going on? And I looked at the profile. It was somebody from mainland China. They're visiting the national parks and in Southern Utah, that's where I'm located. And we messaged him back. We're like, um, I'm not sure I understand like what's going on. And they're like, well, we are trying to boil water and there is no fire. And I'm like, okay. I'm like talking to my husband. I'm like, I think we have an electric stove, right? Like that's just the coils. It's like an old fashioned coil stove. And I'm like, okay, cool. They might not be familiar with that. So we message it back. We're like, don't touch it. It'll boil water. It it should be getting hot. Like is the water heating up? And they're like, yes, the water is heating up. We haven't touched it yet. I'm like, well, please don't touch it. And they're like, that's so weird. There's no fire. And I'm like, that's fine with us, but it just showed a major disconnect that they just didn't have electric stoves in mainland China. It was so weird for them, but we were kind of freaking out. Like, is everything okay? Is our house burning down? And as newbie investors, of course, we were super nervous, but no, it's, that's a day in life. Yeah. We'd be so nervous. Like, do they only have gas where they were from that part of China or? I have no idea. To be honest, the communication wasn't really strong enough. I don't think they were laughing about it, but we were rolling once we figured out what was happening. <laughs> That's so awesome. Where's the fire? Like I, I, my mind was going in a million different directions. I'm like, is there a fire in the park nearby? Is a building on fire? Oh. Yeah, that's a good story. So- right. No, it's funny well, that because was like, our I, brain too. I, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I work with a lot of Spanish people. So like with me, I almost made the connection right away. When you're like, where's the fire? I'm like, oh, they're probably talking about the stove. <laughs> you know, it's funny. amazing how many cultures dislike electric stoves. Um, there's, yeah, I mean, I think I'm not going to do this because of fair housing violations, right? But I mean, it's amazing <laughs> how many cultures are against electronic um, stoves because there's a lot of them. Yeah, and I know a lot of people prefer gas. Uh, how interesting. What a fun story. So take us into the beginning of your journey. Like what, what got you into real estate and kind of take us into what you're doing now a little bit. Yeah, sure. So I was not born an entrepreneur. It definitely not something my, in my blood. Um, I married my husband. That's honestly how I got into all of this is I got married to him. He, his dad is a commercial broker and has loved real estate forever, but has always been a little bit too shy to invest. And so Aaron, my husband said, Hey, I want to invest in real estate. It was kind of a 
just something he always wanted to do. So we got married and about six months later. We moved into a bank owned duplex and remodeled it ourselves while we were living there and showered at the gym because we didn't have bathrooms because we were remodeling those too. And we decided that that was really fun and we made a lot of equity, but we never wanted to do that ever again. And so we started getting smart and actually investing in real estate. And we bought a couple of um, very small homes. So they're about 500 square feet right outside a national park. We just bought them cash. They were 70 grants. They were super cheap and saved up for those. And that was the beginning of our real estate and investing journey was those two properties. One of them, the fire story happened at. And from there, we just got smarter and smarter. And we started learning more and learning more about financing, learning more about short-term rentals, picking a niche in, in real estate in general, and just growing our portfolio. And we were up to about 28 doors within the last three months. We've sold a bunch of those. So I think we're down to like 18 at this point, but it's been a fun, crazy ride. And all of that has happened in about four years. Wow. So you're moving quick. Um, I would love to talk about like any challenges and roadblocks that you hit along the way because they undoubtedly happened, right? So like what kind of bottlenecks did you create when you did this in the four-year process? Yeah, for sure. Financing is definitely a bottleneck. Um, specifically commercial financing for short-term rentals. So it's very common for lenders to not even look at short-term rentals. If they're actively running as a short-term rental, they might say, we don't want to finance it, period, or we don't want to finance it for the income it's actually making. We want to assume it's long-term. We don't want to appraise it the same way. So that's been a huge hurdle is overcoming finding the right lenders um, who will recognize that and view this as the new wave of uh, like hotel and kind of industry in that way. Like this is a massive industry and it's definitely supported. So that's been a huge hurdle. Um, but we've overcome it in a variety of ways. We're always still looking for creative solutions there though. Other hurdles, hiring, like learning how to run a team is crazy and difficult and has come with lots of mistakes. But in the end, I, I love learning those things. And I love working with our team members. So those are just some of them. And then there's lots of small ones too. Like we accidentally bought a house once because my husband and I didn't communicate great about it. And that's a huge mistake. We lost money on a flip. So there's things oh, wait, like see, that too. Yeah. How did you accidentally yeah. buy a house? <laughs> yeah, we did. This. Okay. So we... We're looking, this is the way back in the beginning, right? We had two properties and the neighbor right next door to us um, at the firehouse by the national parks, right, is interested in selling. So we look at all the numbers and we say, hey, I think this is going to make sense. So what we were going to do is we were going to buy it cash and then we were going to refinance out of it because we had plans for that money, but we had the cash on hand right at that moment. So we bought it cash and... When Aaron and I were having a conversation about it, I was like, yeah, we can refinance out of it, right? And he's like, yeah, can we? I'm like, I think so. Like, yeah. And so both of us used this word can and assumed the other person did the research as in like, yes, the lender has approved this. And we just thought, yeah, seems possible. And so we, after we purchased the home, we we're like, okay, cool. So who do we email to get this thing refinanced and get some money back out of it so we can use that cash again? 
And we were both like, oh, I didn't do that. Did you do that? <laughs> so we accidentally bought a house and we had to figure it out. So we brought on a partner um, who was actually thrilled. It ended up being a great deal for everybody involved. But we brought in a partner to help get some cash out because nobody would refinance out of this thing because the square footage was so small. So let's, I want to dive into that a little further. So first of all, the fact that you brought in a partner and everybody's happy is positive. And and obviously those things exist in, in, in the US, but most of the stories we're hearing on our side of the podcast is partnerships gone wrong. So tell us, like, how did you structure that both from a numerical standpoint, but also from like a relational standpoint so that it was such a win for everybody? Yeah, that makes sense. So partner that came in, we ended up pooling all three of those properties together. And so he brought in some cash. So that made it a safer investment for him as well, because he had the financial history of, I believe we were at eight months, 10 months, maybe of the other two properties next door that were making awesome cash flow because they were rented out as short-term rentals. We had them listed on Airbnb and other places. And so we pulled all three of them together in an LLC. And then we gave a percentage of the LLC to him for cash in exchange. Then we could take that cash, go do what we needed to. And he was a part of the whole thing. So it was a safer investment for him because it was multiple properties. And he already had the financials on the other ones. So that's how we structured it. He, I can't remember exactly how much cash he gave us. I think he gave us like 100 20 or 150 and that bottom 40% of the business. Um, and we sold those properties. We've since actually sold them. We held them for about two years and then we sold the whole thing as an operating business. So we sold the financials and the reservations on the future calendar, kind of all of the above. And he made an awesome return at that exit as well as his percentage of the monthly cash flow as well. And we did give him preferred return. So the way that we structured it, that's just like kind of a term that people use. You can kind of define it however you want. But our version of preferred return was that he got his cash out. So if we sold the whole thing for 400,000, he would get his 121.50. Not exactly sure. I don't remember first. And then we would split the kind of the remainder, if that makes sense. Of what so the remainder 60, 40. Yeah. Yeah. Love this. I want to dive deep into this. So, and I know generally, you know, we focus on more of the mindset stuff, which we'll get to, but this is really fascinating. So essentially you created an LLC, put three properties in it and treated it like a business in every possible way, the way you brought in the investment, the way you sold it. Can we talk about how the conversations went about the exit plan from the beginning? Was it kind of like like what I hear a lot of times people are doing a first-time investment. It's like happy-go-lucky. Hey, it's all going to be okay. We'll figure it out when we get there. Or was there a clear defined, you guys, we're going to package this up, get it cash flowing, and then sell it? This one was not defined. Um, and actually, none of our exits have been defined. So I can't give you any help on that one. But one thing that we've always done is Aaron and I, or Aaron or I, have always held the control of the decisions. And I do think that's important that you nominate somebody within a partnership or a syndication that somebody is in charge of making the decisions. And the fact that you're putting money into that investments means that you trust that person to make the best financial decision. And so when we saw, because we were down there more frequently, we saw that the management changed on the HOA of the area we were in. And we saw it kind of deteriorating a little bit. We said, Hey, let's just sell before 
anything changes. And since like after COVID, the property values have gone down in there because it's just become a little bit crummier. And so because we were the nominated decision makers and the most involved, we said, Hey, I think it's probably best we sell now. And so we did. And it was a great decision. The properties still make actually really good money, but we just didn't want the park to affect anything. So anyway, at the end of the day, I think it's important that you nominate somebody and you put your trust in them. So it's not like three heads on a snake trying to make a decision. Totally. So this, I'm guessing here, but I'm assuming this is what led you to the management. So you're buying these properties. Was it a, a sense of the people that you're paying to manage it were charging too much? Were they not doing the right job? Or did you guys manage them from the very beginning? We managed them from the beginning from five hours away. So fairly immediately, I learned how to manage without being there, which was honestly one of the best lessons I ever learned. We did look for management companies, but we'd been doing it for a couple of months when we started looking and they were extremely expensive and none of them were doing what we were doing. We thought we were doing a really bad job. And so we said, okay, if we want to continue this strategy and this cash flow, we have to build it out. And have to shortly became get to. And that's where I just really sunk my teeth. And so I run that. My husband now does syndications and other things. And I just run the management company and I love it. I love working with my team. Oh, this is so really cool. So like, obviously you were drawn to this as soon as you started doing it. So like, what do you love so much about the property management portion of the short-term rentals? It draws people out of the woodwork. So when I go to a real estate investing event, I am frequently like the only woman in the room or maybe the only one who's not new. And I love how short-term rentals just draw people out of the woodwork. You'll have investors who have been in this for 30 years and you talk about getting a vacation rental or investing in an Airbnb. And suddenly their wives and daughters and sons are like, Hey, I could help you furnish it. Hey, have you tried this? Like I can take the pictures on my brand new iPhone. And it just brings people together. Everyone can get behind having fun and going on vacation. And so I just loved the culture it created. I love the guests. There's a lot to it. And I'm kind of a fan of complicated problems. So it's definitely enough to keep me busy. Um, and really that's kind of what just drew me to it. It's just, just different. Okay, cool. You just said you're a fan of complicated problems. Let's dive into this a little bit. Like intrinsically, what is it that attracts you to complicated problems? Well, and maybe it's perspective too, because there's definitely been times where I've pridefully said, I could run a drop shipping business. That's easy. Like mine's clearly more complicated. Big lies, right? Big lies. But I... I really enjoy automation. I really enjoy tech. And so bringing that to sometimes an antiquated real estate industry where things haven't changed in a lot of years has been really fun for me. And as I've seen people's eyes been open to, oh, whoa, like I could not have to manually send letters of intent. I would have to not manually do all of these things. That is so cool. That saves me so much time. That makes me more efficient. I would enjoy my job more. It really started with conversations like that where I'm like, oh yeah, I know how to use if this, then that, or this or that. And then it's become this full-fledged management company that has a ton of automation. This is so awesome. Like there's so many directions we can go. Before we start going down the automation road, I want to talk to you about 
the beginning decision to go into short-term rentals. So one of the things that you're mentioning is that everybody's coming out of the woodworks because they love it. Did you have that vision from the beginning about that you wanted to buy short-term rentals for the lifestyle or was it based on the returns or how did you guys come to that decision to go that direction? Just strictly returns. It was that we could rent these very small houses uh, for a lower amount or we could make them super cool and have this like little kid loft and make it fun and make triple. And so we said, let's make triple. We're young and broke. Let's do it. Absolutely love that. And there's people like we talk to investors every day. And the thing that I love about the short term game is it gives the the buyers the chance to have true lifestyle. Like I know one of my visions on my vision board is to own 12 of the most amazing properties across the country that cash flow that like I would travel to on vacation. And that's the thing that gets like me so excited is because we're not going to be hopefully dominated by the hotel industry in the way that we were. It gives the everyday person the ability to, you know, buy some really cool lifestyle pieces. Have you guys thought about, you know, maybe going in and building a lifestyle business that way across the country or are you guys like strictly focused where you're at? So in all honesty, I'm not that coordinated. I run my own business so I could run my own schedule. And the way that we run our rentals, I would have to plan at least three months in advance to book my own place. And I'm not that good at it. So I'll take the cash and I'll go on a trip whenever I want. And we have a lot of owners that do that too, right? They buy a property and they say, Hey, I'm buying this. So when I come back, I can stay here with my family over holidays and this and that. And then they see the income and they see how booked it is. And they're like, you know, it kind of is a bummer. I never get to stay at my own place, but at the same time, I really don't care. Don't change a thing. So I guess I see the other side of that because we're very high occupancy in the way that we market these properties, but very much on the same page where then you have the income that allows you the lifestyle to go and do whatever you want. Okay. So that, that brings up an idea, right? So like, what is a typical occupancy rate that you're shooting for in a short-term rental? So everyone will tell you something different and it really is area specific. Another thing you have to factor in is seasonality, but a lot of people say about the 80% mark. So it's fairly common. People say if you're 80% occupied, you are killing it. You're doing great. Um, my metrics a little bit different. These are investments for myself and the majority of my other owners where you want that place occupied every night for as much as somebody will pay for that night. Think about airlines, right? If they have extra tickets, they'll drop the price, they'll offer extras, they'll kind of... So I'm definitely more on like the airline side of things where my properties have a different price every single day based on 23 different factors and demand and all of those things. But if you're managing yourself and you're just looking for a number, say 80%, but that also might change in the different seasons. Okay. So utilizing the strategies that you do, I mean, obviously this is going to vary a bit, but what kind of occupancy rates are you guys hitting? Because it sounds like it's higher than 80. 90s. Yeah. So our average is in the 90s. Uh, it's fluctuated between like 88 and 94 over the last eight, 10 months. That's the last time I checked. So very high occupancy um, across the whole portfolio. And the ways we're able to do that 
most specifically our marketing and pricing, which kind of is everything when it comes to short-term rentals. But we use some pricing software and we have a lot of customizations on it. So if you have an Airbnb and you want to look into it, look up Price Labs. That's one of the softwares that we use. Um, but there's different strategies you can use where um, one of them right now, for example, we're going into a slower season in Utah. So Utah is really busy in the summer and really busy in the winter. There's great skiing here in the winter. In the summer, there's a ton of conferences and events. But like October and then like April, May is slow for us because it's the shoulder season between both of those. So we like to optimize to take longer bookings to take us all the way through slow slow season. So we market really hard and we drop our prices for mid-September, October, like a month in advance. And we market to 30-day guests to make sure that we could get somebody who's between houses, just sold, waiting for a new build to be done, those sorts of things. So we can book high occupancy all the way through so we're not affected by those low seasons. So there's an example of one of the strategies we use. Great. So, I mean, it looks like you're 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 doing a little bit of a short-term, mid-term mix strategy in order to keep the occupancy that high. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Um, so, the majority of high season is all short-term because a vacationer is always going to pay more. But definitely to carry you through low season, or if there's a property that's subprime, it's also a great strategy because there's a lot of people that just don't want to pay hotel prices if they're traveling for work. Like there's a lot of construction workers that travel and nurses where they just want something safe, reliable, good, decent kind of quality. So even if your property is not the nicest in the nicest area, there's a pretty good chance that it could do better like time and a half, 1.8 kind of better if it's furnished midterm. So midterm is traditionally like 30 days to six months. So shorter rentals and set up more like a hotel or an Airbnb. I super appreciate this combination of strategies. Like I think one of the things that, you know, I'm a, uh, guilty of, and I see a lot of people is like you commit to one thing and you don't bring in the different elements. Like this is so cool that you are able to one, vary the prices, but then two, vary the strategy for that property to maximize its income. No doubt why you guys have 90%. So how do you guys know which properties are truly a candidate for being a short-term rental? Like what sort of analysis do you go through in your underwriting and what sort of ROI metrics are you looking for to make a purchase? Yeah. So my criteria for purchase personally is it's pretty intense, to be honest. I have a lot that comes across my plate, so I get a lot of really good deals. So it has to be massive income, passive income, and it has to cash flow monthly. So, or sorry, that it, that's passive. So massive, passive, and has a kitchen. So massive, meaning that I can burr out of it so I can purchase the property, improve the property, refinance the property, and pull cash out. So that's where I get my massive. Passive. So massive essentially is like an equity scenario where there's enough equity either innately or with fixing that you have the right percentages to get a loan that will completely cash you out. Yes. Loan that will keep, keep sorry, it will completely cash me out. And frequently I pull cash out of the deal as well, not just the down payment staying in. Um, so that's my massive. My passive is cash flow monthly, which if I'm getting a massive, I would say my bare minimum on that is probably like three to $400. So it's pretty low if I am getting that massive. Like if I can get a property for free or I can get paid to get a property, I'll go for it. Even if I'm only going to make $300 a month and then has a kitchen. So 
we've managed some hotels and different properties like that. And I've just decided that I want a kitchen in each unit where most hotel rooms don't offer that. Most motels don't offer that. So for me to hold it personally, I want a kitchen in every unit because it gives more flexibility if I do ever need to move it to long-term or midterm where I can do that fairly seamlessly. That's a great point. And I think it's amazing advice. Is there any other things like that that you're looking for? Like you said, a kitchen. Um, let's talk about like maybe even furnishings and um, utilities. Like what things are like the bare minimum that people should be looking for when looking for a short-term rental? Yeah, great questions. Um, another thing that I do when I'm looking for these, because they can be so different in different areas and Really, a short-term rental is whatever you market it as. So if you want a cozy little tiny space, you could be fine with 500 square feet. But if you want like a massive place on the lake, have the families there. So what I'm saying is it can just vary widely. So one tool that we've actually put together and custom developed that's free to everyone is on our website and is a short-term rental projection calculator. So it takes data from actual backend data um, from different rental sites like Airbnb, VRBO, and Booking.com. And it has a couple of small adjustments to it. You could also check AirDNA is a, a fairly common one too. So we pull data from AirDNA and then we put some kind of custom adjustments on it based on what we see in the area. But anywhere in the US it works. So you can get on our website. It's like a Zestimate thing where you can plug in the square footage bed bath count and see what your occupancy and your nightly income would look like. If you are in Utah, I'm more than happy to help you kind of customize that too. If you have additional questions, if you're outside of Utah, I don't have customized data. It's just kind of pulled from the data sources we use. So it's up there for free, but you might ask somebody locally if that's really what they're seeing as well. But as far as requirements, I think the biggest requirement are figuring out who you're going to rent to and targeting that property towards a group. You're never going to know for sure who's going to stay at your property. But if you say, this is a big family get together place, you want four pack in place. You want, you know, you want to cater to that. You want multiple master suites where a family would be very comfortable staying. If you want a tiny little cozy place, then get out the books and get out the lights and make sure the movies are there, those sorts of things. So really more than anything, pick your ideal guest and just furnish it and pick a property for them and make sure they're going to that area. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between five and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. 
If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us. And let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. I love this. So diving into this deeper, I want to show people out there what's possible. So obviously you've given us some examples of you know, some of the challenges like buying a property and then realizing, oh, we have to find financing. Like, And super kudos to you guys for being able to bring in a partner, structure it in a great way, have a great exit. So, but like, what's possible? Like if you're willing to share some numbers, like what is like maybe the most successful deal that you guys have done? Or like if someone hits a home run in this space, what would that look like? Yeah. Let me walk you through numbers on one that we did. So this one's in Ogden, Utah. I still manage it, but I don't own it anymore. So we bought a property. It was an abandoned senior living facility. We bought it for $300,000. Um, we did have a partner on it. He was actually the wholesaler on it. So he waived his wholesale fee and kind of, anyway, he was good to work with, but I'll, I'll tell you about the partnership as well because it did end. And so I think that's important that it's part of the story. So we bought the property. We put about $150,000 into it and about a $50,000 more in furnishing it. It has a big central kitchen. So it has an apartment, a big central kitchen living space with like projector screens and all sorts of kind of additions that we added. And then it has 10. So it has a little studio apartment and then 10 additional rooms. It's kind of set up like a micro hotel where each room has its own bathroom, TV, those sorts of things, their own keypad lock on it. And then there's the big shared kitchen. And we knew in this area, there's a hotel shortage in Ogden, Utah. So although it's technically zoned as a short-term rental, we knew that it would do extremely well in both individual bookings and whole house bookings where like a corporation, somebody will come in. So this last summer, for example, we hosted interns for the entire summer. So the company rented it out for $500 a night and had all of their interns stay in there. And it was fun. They created culture. They'd write notes to each other on the whiteboard. They shared a kitchen. They all had their little bins in the kitchen with their own food and their own food in the fridge. So very healthy environment in that way. So Right. So we bought this thing, took us about a year to remodel it and get it furnished. And then we got it appraised. And before we purchased it, we did get a commercial appraisal and said, Hey, if this was set up this way, what would it be worth? And that commercial appraisal helped us feel comfortable buying it. And that personal, oh, sorry, that came in at about 850. So 850,000 when we we're buying it for three, putting, you know, one and a half. So, 150 or 200,000 into it. So we felt comfortable buying it. After we, we had a really hard time financing it though. And so we learned a lot in that process, right? We thought we'd had a hard time financing things before, but this was a commercial use in a residential zone. It was all allowed by the city, all permitted, but it was weird. It's a very weird property. And we have found lenders who will finance it, which is great. So if anyone's in this situation with short-term rentals on my Instagram, I have it linked. We have a list. So all of the thousands of emails we went through with all these different lenders across the country, we put together a list of 15 who will lend on things like this in almost any state. So some lenders have different requirements. But if you need that list, it's on my Instagram, which we can get to you in the show notes or whatever. <laughs> and Such then, a great value. Thank you for cataloging that. That is so helpful. So we'll yeah. make sure we link to that in the show notes. Okay, perfect. And 
so after we were done with it and it was up and running, it cash flowed. Well, we owned it cash at that point. So it made about $10,000 a month after all of the expenses and the management fee, which was killer. I mean, we were in this property for not that much. So that was great for us. And so we did end up selling it. We sold it for 900000 which we ended up selling it because the partnership just started getting a little bit weird. And we recognized that we really liked the individual. They're in our area. They're in a lot of our networks. And we just learned that our values didn't perfectly align. And we decided that it was probably best that we part ways now rather than get into a situation where things where we were actually disagreeing on things. So we didn't disagree. We left very happy, but we always kind of watched the vibe of partnerships and we'll exit if we feel like anything is not congruent. And so this, this specifically, this partner felt like after the property was appraising for so much and there was so much equity there, he came back and was like, Hey, I think I'd like to renegotiate. I think I'd like a higher percentage because of a few things that we didn't really think were very valid. And so at that point we're like, Hey, if you're dissatisfied with, with, you know, how we're splitting all of this, then, then I think we should probably both exit. And so we ended up exiting, which was good for both of us. Cause then it, I think it alleviated any problems down the line, which was really good too. Um, we sold the property for 900,000, which left us with an exit over 200,000, uh, cash, which was great. And, 10,000 the whole time we held it. So that was pretty sweet too. And after everything, we we're really glad we did the property. I still manage the property. So I still make money out of it every month. And that's kind of a killer deal in my opinion. Um, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a tremendous deal. I mean, I would love to talk about like this partnership a little bit. So like you mentioned, um, Sometimes, you know, you don't have the same values and things don't feel right. Like this person in seem appears they came in to rene renegotiate and obviously it doesn't sound like that was a good response on your end. I'm curious, like, what do you think, like when you're getting into a partnership, what are you looking for on the other half? Um, what kind of vetting do you do to find the right partners? And what do you, what kind of red flags are you looking for to avoid bad partnership? Yeah. So... With our partnership structure and the mistake that I made in vetting this partner is I think they were a little bit too much involved. And it wasn't necessarily that like I wanted to hide what I was doing at all, but I'm extremely involved in our investments that are mine financially as well, not just the ones that I manage. And the fact that we remodeled it, we furnished it, and then we run it day to day means that my ideal partner is actually very passive and not involved. So my ideal partner never stops by the property. They might not even know which properties they own. They just get a check and they review the financials and then they reach out to me and say, Hey, like I'm looking to place more money or Hey, if I wanted to, to get cash at some point, like what would we do? And so really my ideal, I'm so involved in so many things that it's actually best that my partners are incredibly passive. And this individual, like he's a wholesaler, he's very much involved. And I just didn't want, there weren't any specific issues with the rehab at all, but that's a great example. 
is if you're having people like stop by or, um, Hey, I think we should do it this way. I think we should do it that way. I think, like I said in the beginning, it's very important that one person is the clear decision maker. And it would be the same for me. If I was investing in the stock market and somebody was helping me, I know nothing about stocks, like embarrassingly nothing. And so I would want somebody to help me who was going to be in charge and I was not going to be in charge. And you can definitely ask questions and make suggestions, but it should be like in a structured kind of meeting where it's like, cool, we'll look into that. But knowing that you don't know what you're talking about kind of thing. So hopefully that helps. It is so helpful. Yeah. And it's, I think number one thing that's helpful is you're defining what you want and what you don't want, which I think is like the the most important thing. But also like, I love the model where it's like you have the specialist. And so, yeah, I mean, and, and the, what I found when I bring on investors and the more involved they are, it's usually because of a lack of trust or a personality that has to control. And usually either way, it it uh, it makes things challenging. So like, I'm just really impressed by your ability to take situations that could be bad and make them good. And that, I think that's just a, an amazing skill that your focus on relationships is has guided you in that way. So tell us about some partnerships that you've done that have been like amazing from the get go. Like, you know, how, how are you finding these partners? Are you just talking about what you're doing? Yeah. And to be honest, I really haven't had that many partnerships. So I've probably had the two I've talked about are the two biggest ones. And I would say one of them, the one with the Ogden project, the 11 unit, um, ended it just like a clean departure, but I wouldn't partner with them again. And the first one that I shared with the properties down by the national parks went awesome. And I would potentially partner with them again, but we choose to, chose to exit because that's what was best for the property. And so I really haven't had that many partners as much as we do. We'd actually try to do it ourselves without partners, but when we are taking on partners or considering that we've also considered much more than we've actually gone through on projects with, right? I think that's true for everyone. You drive by all the houses you could have bought or didn't buy or whatever, right? <laughs> so I think it's important that when you're thinking about partners and you're thinking about vetting them, that you really think it all the way through. It's really exciting when you're working on a new project, you have something shiny and you're like, wow, we're going to make so much money. It's going to be so fun that you just skip over things. I meet your partners in person. That's one of them that should be really obvious to everyone. If you haven't seen the white of their eyes, I wouldn't partner with them. If you, I mean, like even having your accountants meet each other is a potential suggestion because having that kind of, depending on how you're doing it, if it's a true syndication or not, um, them being open to spending money on a partnership agreement, I think is a good indicator as well, whether one, if they're kind of cheap or if they're willing to protect themselves and you, if you can both split costs and sit down with an attorney and write something up, I think that's a really potentially good partnership in all honesty. Um, I like to meet people's wives because I'm in it with my husband. And so even if it's just on the phone, I think that's kind of important. And maybe this is like super extra to people. It's like, wow, Lauren, that's crazy. It looks like you want my social to partner with me, but I, it's part of life and it's part of business. And business for me is not clearly delineated. It's not like this is my personal life and this is my business. It's all one. And so these are things that are potentially important to me and might be to you too, depending on how your business is set up. 
I love this. So when I went from being a math teacher into the B2B sales world, my boss, I don't even know if this is legal, but my boss as a part of like a seven step interview process to hire, which was amazing, like the best sales manager I've ever had. And he actually had a dinner with his wife and with my wife prior to like hiring me. That was like the final step. And like, I thought that was so cool. Maybe uh, some people would think it's discrimination, but like, it was so like the, the message it sent to me was like, wow, you care so much about me and you're, you're like that. You don't want to impact negatively the culture of the team. And you want to make sure that there's really truly a good fit from a family perspective. I went on to work with that guy and he put on boating trips for the families. And it was just like, you know, we worked like our tails off, but then it was such a fun environment to be in. And so like, I, I just want to say kudos on that, like that you're bringing in to dive into it a little bit deeper. Like, let's say you have a guy like me and my wife has no desire to be in the business at all. So she loves being at home with the kids. She loves, you know, cooking and, and hosting parties at our house, things like that. What sort of involvement, you know, are you looking for if any, or are you just looking for someone that's not crazy? Um, you say that, but would your wife be interested in picking the new tile for your bathroom? Because I think she would be, right? So even if you're not interested in the investment side of it, the numbers side of it, like you are, right? And that's something about what I do specifically is short-term rentals are furnished and they're usually cuter than long-term rentals. So if we're looking at doing a project together, I'm bringing like mock-ups of what it's going to look like when it's all done. And it's fun to walk a property just because we're all nosy. So if you're looking at buying a property and you walk it with your significant other, it's usually fun, even if it's crappy. And so those are the sorts of things is that I just really want them to feel involved. I, If they ever want to be involved, if they ever want to come see it, I just don't want them to feel alienated. And people are used to what they always do. So if I had never met somebody's spouse and they called me and they're like, hey, I want to walk through the property, I feel weird. I feel almost immediately attacked. Like, uh, what's going wrong with it? And they probably feel awkward making that phone call. And so if you can just start the relationship and introduce it, if I never hear or see that person again is fine, but it just introduces this comfort, which I think is important. Yeah. I think that's so cool. Yeah. And then, then you get a chance to really learn the priorities of the people you're partnering with. Do you do this when you're helping people buy short-term rentals or as well, or just strictly when you're looking for partnerships? So we're much pickier when you're looking for partnerships. And again, we haven't done like a ton of partnerships. I've had three partners ever and I told you about two of them. And so, and the other, I guess, is my husband. He's my partner in everything, but he's already pre-approved. <laughs> nice. um, but when we're, when we're looking, I guess I have similar ideas in the majority of other sections of my business. So I'm looking at a management client and bringing them on. I have to have seen their face. So you can't just call me and say, Hey, I'd like to have you know, I'd like for you to manage my property. At very least, if you're out of state, we got on a Zoom call and just make sure that everyone involved kind of understands and knows who I am because that's important to me. So I guess I do have kind of different vetting standards in different categories of my business and my life 
just to make sure that everyone is comfortable because I, and it probably comes from a place of like deep insecurity for me because I kind of hate conflict. So the more I can do upfront, like my management contract has a video that explains it in case you don't want to read it and you have to sign that you watched the video. So whether you did or not, like I just don't want anyone to be able to come back and be like, Hey, I didn't understand. Like I legitimately want to help care and nurture for people, which is probably why I'm in hospitality. But it kind of goes throughout. So I think you find a version of this that works for your business because my version probably does not work for you, right? Figure out what you're comfortable with, what your criteria is. Think of the worst interactions you've ever had and how they might've been avoided and make rules for yourself and stick to them because it's infinitely better than not wanting to go to work or get up because you don't want to talk to certain people. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. 100% agreed. And I feel like this is totally a natural role for you. This is probably just a great fit for your personality from the very beginning. Um, you mentioned towards the beginning of the interview that like you almost fell in love with this whole thing. And we got to take it in that direction now. So I mean, you are really attracted to technology and automation. So like what kind of technology and automations are you using in your business in order to get, you know, the 88 to 94% occupancy rate, which is crazy. Yeah. So my tech stack is deep. So I'm not going to like walk you through every program that I use, but I'm going to walk through ones that I think can be adapted to multiple industries. So whether you're an agent or your title agent, really anything within the realm of real estate or business ownership, I think there's a version of these that can work for you. Um, I use monday.com. It's honestly the single platform that has saved me the most time. It's kind of like Asana. If you're familiar with that, it's a task or Trello. It's a task management system, but it makes automation really easy. And just for context, I don't code like that whole C colon plus. No, I know nothing. So everything that I'm sharing is potentially beginner friendly. You might have to watch a YouTube video to figure it out but something that you could do. So if you're running a team specifically, or you're sending out a lot of documents, monday.com has a ton of integrations with different softwares. If you're an agent, there are typically for different areas, it's really run by your MLS. Some MLS have automated like document signatures built in. Uh, JotForm or DocuSign is also something else. Basically, if you're spending time preparing paperwork, you could automate that. So anything you spend time like that, look for ways around it. You can also hire people to teach you how to automate and do it all for you. Find them on Upwork. And and I've done that a lot too for custom things that I've needed, but you can do hundreds of thousands of dollars of custom development for your business for like 10 grand. And if that saves you an employee a week or yourself a whole bunch of time and effort, when I'm sending contracts, everything I need, all of the email chains to get a new owner onboarded for me, it takes me two to three clicks to be able to add everything and get them filtering through the process. And so think about your business and, and how that could be possible. Other tips for that, we use if this, then that to reach out to properties that are listed on like Craigslist, things like that. There's YouTube videos of how to do that online. Just search if this, then that Craigslist and you'll be able to find those. Having a phone, oh my gosh, this is like probably the biggest one. Your phone should not actually be on your phone because if you ever want to hire somebody to help you with your phone, you can't hand this to them. 
right? It has to be online. So having your texting and your phone number, you can move all of that online, still have it on your actual phone and not technically automation, but really kind of the only way to scale. So we use Ring Central. We've also really liked Spoke, um, which is a software that helps with phone integration that both of those grow really well. There's other services like Grasshopper that are really well reviewed. But if you want to try to get into like automated texting and those sorts of things, they don't compile quite as well. This is incredible. Do you have any sort of video out on this or a Ooh, document? I don't, but I have to tell you this. I work for free four times a year. And it's something that I just do to be able to know people and get to know them. So it's usually about 10 hours of work, but I've done custom help automation for my broker. For example, I went in and he runs a hard money lending company. I went in, took notes, got him some systems going. So four times a year, once a quarter, I work for free. And so if you are interested in having me help you, maybe just reach out on Instagram. And if I have a spot and I will, but if you also ask questions, I'm pretty big on content as well because my time's important to me. I do a lot of one-to-many sorts of classes and Instagram content and so, and TikTok and such. So if you have questions, reach out because then, you know, on Monday when I'm trying to dream up what I'm going to talk about this week, I could just talk about whatever you ask me. So that's a good resource as well. Some of it is customized, but I'm more than happy to make resources for those if people want to request them. Totally. And I don't want to be presumptuous. I mean, I, you're going to have 40 hours a, a year. You know, I don't want to take it from, you know, maybe somebody that would need it more or less fortunate. But if if there's an open time slot and we could give this out to the audience and come with a list of pre-prepared questions and systems, I think that would be tremendous. You want so, it, Matt. Well, Plead all, your case. You for, <laughs> okay. Okay. If you let me, if you let me pitch you, I will. I'm, I'm a phone salesman. So um, that won't be a problem. Yeah. I'm so done. So, let's do it. I, let's give, yeah. let's oh, okay. give listeners of the podcast Q4. All right. I okay. So, so you have to be, stoked. you have to have listened to this episode and I will work for okay. free for you. You can apply just by messaging in uh, what you need and why on I guess just contact me. Probably Instagram is probably the easiest way to do that. So we can create a little community around it. Love it. Yeah. And then, and then if you think of any other requirements, like they got to like your socials or however they could benefit you, we'll make that part of the requirements. That's a good idea. Cool. Let's do it. That'd be great. That is so awesome. So what I want to dive into now is you are in business with your husband and everything in the way that you've described what you're doing is so energetic and positive. So can you talk about what it's like working with your husband and how you've structured that in a way where maybe you're maximizing your skills, avoiding conflict, et cetera? We used to be so bad at it and we've gotten a lot better. So I definitely have some things to share. Um, When we started, we both had the same business and the same to-do list. And that is the worst thing, in my opinion, that you can do because you're working on top of each other. You don't know who's done what. And it's just chaos. And the other thing is you're spending all of this time when you're working on the exact same things, you're spending all this time updating each other and there's never a win that isn't shared. 
So for us, that was our perspective. And so we separated kind of what we did. We said, hey, what is Lauren really good at? Okay, only Lauren is doing that. What is Aaron really good at? Great, only Aaron is doing that. Because then you don't have to update each other. You have your own little things going on and you can share your wins. You can say, hey, I did this. Are you proud of me? Instead of, hey, we finally got it done. It was a big difference for us in our happiness and celebrating successes. And it made a big difference in the numbers. Our business tripled after we made that decision and change, um, which, well, my business tripled. His business just became his own business because <laughs> I kind of, I took the majority of what was already happening and he there started his own. So I guess I give some credit <laughs> there. But yeah, it's so important and it's so hard to learn that balance. So if you're struggling with it, like it's okay to struggle. I just don't want people to see me and my husband who are now working very successfully separately, but together very much so and think that it wasn't hard. There's nothing wrong with your relationship if it's hard to find that balance. It's very, very normal. And the fact you're working together at all is like absolutely kudos. It's very difficult to do. Oh, you're absolutely right. So I think what you just said was very similar to, I don't know if you're familiar with who Alex Harmozy is, but he works with his wife and they literally work on opposite sides of the house now and they work on different things so that they could still talk about their day and have an engaging conversation at the end of the day instead of like being in the same room with each other. So, I mean, I think that's a very wise um, conclusion that you guys came to. How long did it take before you guys determined that your partnership would be better off if somebody was, or if you guys were in specialized roles instead of generalized roles? Yeah, probably a year and a half. And that was probably the hardest year and a half that we've ever had in marriage and business, all of the above. Because, and, and for me, I'm a very uh, social individual. I'm fired up by positivity. And it was because I couldn't share wins. Anything would be like, hey, I'm so proud I did this today. It's like, yeah, I already know. And that was just crushing to me. And for him, it was not having his own thing. Like he wanted his own thing. He wanted something that he could say was his. And so that year and a half of figuring out that was important to us was difficult. But after we did, it's been an absolute game changer and so much more respect. Like I love my husband so much more because he's independent in that way now. And I can see him thriving. And so if... If it sounds right to you to separate responsibilities, I would do it as soon as you can. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. Because everybody has strengths and weaknesses too. Like the better you guys get at, at counterbalancing each other, um, the better off it'll be in the long run. So so Lauren, like give me an idea. What is your guys' vision or, or yours specifically, right? Because we're talking about home havens right now. What is your vision over the next 12 months or that general time frame? Great question. So... Home Havens has fairly always been word of mouth. So I teach classes, I get on podcasts. I just love sharing what I do and ideas for other people to do something similar or the same. And I would, that's how I've always marketed. So now I'm doing marketing like for the first time ever, like SEO and more of those sorts of things, reaching out to people who are struggling, which I'm actually really excited about because I think I'll be able to help a lot of people that way. So we've started texting people who own rentals in vacation areas specifically. So complexes who are zoned and intended for vacation rentals and saying, Hey, do you need help? Like, Hey, can we come teach a class at your HOA? Is there anything you need? 
need. And so I've always had people come to me, which I've been incredibly blessed to do it that way. But we're now kind of reaching out in the other way, which I'm really enjoying because I think we'll be able to help a lot more people who really need it. And I'm excited to see how those stories unfold. So we're continuing to grow the management company. I think we'll be closer to about 300 doors managed within the next 18 months or so. Um, and just growing our marketing, both on getting new owners and on the renters that are coming in and the guests that we have. We're also reaching out to companies, offering more, going teaching classes about how business owners can offer housing as a benefit for their employees and just those sorts of things. So more specialized marketing and I'm already seeing some good response. So I'm excited to do that as something new. Oh, I love how you've already built your business like with an attraction model and you're going after a chasing model afterwards. It is almost universally the opposite. So, I mean, an attraction model is an asset. And as you continue building it, it'll continue growing and snowballing. Once you incorporate the chasing model too, I mean, you, this thing could really blow up. So I'm really excited for, for where you are and where you're going. If our audience wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the best way for them to reach out? Yeah. So I put out a lot of free content on TikTok and Instagram. Instagram specifically, I do stories every day, upload reels. You will feel heard if you are in real estate. There's some comedy on there. There's a lot of resources on automation, short-term rentals specifically. Um, so that's probably the best place to kind of keep in touch. If you want to reach out specifically, uh, you can also just DM on there. I see all those messages still. So that's kind of a hack to get to me. If you're interested in our management services, We'll send you to our website to get some projections and book a call from there. But if you want me specifically, a little secret is I still manage all of my DMs on Instagram. So hopefully that helps. There you go. You got the secret sauce, everybody. Um, Lauren Haven, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business. And to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. So if you do nothing else, write down one action that you got from today and make sure to start taking actions to complete that within the next seven days and tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. So we'll catch you guys on the next one. Take care. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 